0: Hi everyone, I'm Tara Mont, and you're listening to the Trust and Thrive with Tara Mont podcast, where you can find a new episode released every Thrive Thursday. I am a current clinical psychology graduate student, passionate about all things to do with mental health, relationships, healing, self-reflection, and other topics that influence us in our everyday lives. I created this podcast to hopefully inspire others to live their most authentic life and to share insightful and honest conversations with everyday individuals and informed professionals. Although the show is not a replacement for therapy, I hope the conversations had can inspire you to look within, to practice self-compassion, to gain more awareness, and to trust the process of your unique journey. If you resonate with the message of Trust and Thrive, make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. You can also stay connected by following me on Instagram at trustandthrive. Thank you for being here. Now let's get right into this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Trust and Thrive with me, Tara Mont. I hope you're doing well. I hope you are enjoying the start to spring So this episode does touch on the concept of intersectionality and specifically colorism. We talk about what colorism means, what it looks like, how it connects to racism and differentiating the two, and how many people can experience oppression within their own communities. So for example, a dark-skinned Black woman is going to have a different experience than a lighter-skinned Black woman. And so we touch on these different areas and how important it is to acknowledge your different privileges and acknowledge your implicit bias and many beliefs you may have that you may not even be aware of. And so I'm very thankful to this guest for sharing her amazing work that she does and hopefully informing you in some way on a new topic and hopefully providing more information that you didn't know so that you maybe feel inspired to learn more on your own. At the end of the day, these episodes are just a starting point. If you're interested in learning more about the topics, about the work, you can follow this guest, you can research yourself. We have to do the work. And so now to introduce this week's guest, her name is Dr. Sarah L. Webb. Dr. Webb is an assistant professor in the Department of English and Modern Languages at the University of Illinois Springfield, where she teaches writing and cultural studies. She launched the website Colorism Healing in 2013 to raise awareness and create change. Since then, she has reached thousands of people across the globe through her international writing contest, articles, interviews, presentations, and workshops. You can visit her Instagram at Colorism Healing, and you can also visit her website, colorismhealing.com. And there's also more info there if you want to participate in her writing contest which will close on April 30th. And you can follow me on Instagram at Trust And I will make sure to include all that info in the description of this episode. And if you enjoyed this episode or have been enjoying the show in general, you can leave a rating and review on Apple iTunes. It would mean so much and it really helps more people discover the show. So thank you in advance, everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode. So let's get right into it with Dr. Webb. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Hi, Tara. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And so before we get into it, can you tell us about yourself and what you do?
1: Yes. So I'm an English professor at the University of Illinois in Springfield. I teach a lot of creative writing and literature courses, but I'm also the creator of Colorism Healing, which I started in 2013 as a website. And it has since grown to an international writing contest and an initiative where I do workshops, most of them virtual, virtual these days. But a lot of education and raising awareness about the issue of colorism and facilitating
0: healing and solutions to it that's amazing and so for someone who doesn't know what colorism is i think everyone you know has heard of racism but a lot of people don't understand the differentiation can you define colorism and explain how it's different from racism
1: yes so colorism is a system of oppression based on skin tone and across the world the system privileges lighter skin tones over darker skin tones and that also includes other features such as hair texture and eye colors So where European features are, the appearance of what we consider European features is more privileged throughout various societies. And so one important thing to remember in terms of distinguishing colorism from racism is that people can be the same race, but have very different skin tones. And people can have different, be different races, but have very similar, or the same skin tones. And so race and color are not synonyms, although a lot of people use those things synonymously. A lot of times colorism, color, sorry, is used as a euphemism when someone is trying to talk about race. But actually, those two things are very different. And it's also important to remember that race is the social construct, but our skin tone, our complexion is a biological fact. So regardless of what the label or the name is for people who look like me, the features are inherent. So I think that comes into play when we think about the impact of colorism versus racism. Mm
0: -hmm. And thank you for explaining that. And do you think for individuals who are multiracial and come from multiracial families, can you explain maybe how they may struggle with their identities and even how that may affect someone's mental health?
1: Yes. So for people who come from multiracial families, are, who are they themselves are multiracial, right? Because the dynamics can be very diverse in terms of what that means for different people. But I think that ties directly back to what I was saying about there being a difference between the racial category that we use to you know, sort people in our society versus the physical appearance and for multiracial people or biracial people, or people who are transracially adopted, for example, the, a lot of times their physical appearance does not match what people typically assume their racial identity should look like, right? Yeah. And so they get asked questions like, well, what are you? Because culturally speaking, um, unfortunately, we have stereotypical ideas about what someone who's considered white should look like or what someone who's considered black should look like or even what someone who's considered considered mixed should look like right and we know that even amongst multiracial people or mixed-race people um the phenotypes can range just as widely as people who are monoracial right and so there are people who don't look quote-unquote mixed and so there are all these. issues around what you look like versus what people expect you to look like or what people would assume you look like, depending on how you identify. And I know I've heard many stories about how that differentiation, that gap between what I look like and what people assume are um, even give me space to identify as is a big source of frustration and alienation even. So a lot of times people who are multiracial feel like they don't have the agency to identify the way they want to because people are members of that group say well you can't identify as this because you also have other mixtures in you or you know well you can't identify as that either right and so there's a lot of pushback in terms of the uh, the agency that they want to have to be able to identify the way they choose. And I think that leads to a lot of feelings of isolation and feelings, again, of alienation, not feeling like you have community, feeling like, you know, in, in terms of the family you grew up in, people don't understand your experience. And so not feeling like you really have a place in any of these communities, even though you feel connected to the communities in some way, or you want to feel a connection and still feeling sort of left out.
0: mm mm-hmm. And that's such a good point. I In one of my classes in grad school, I did a project on depression and multiracial young adults. And we talked about how it wasn't even until 2000, the year 2000, that the US Census gave you the option to check more than one box. And I was so shocked by that. Like it's only 2000. And even then, you know, you have like your main race and then you kind of have to pick and choose who you feel like you are in your identity. So can you even talk about how maybe for an individual this or just in general how your race and feeling like you have to choose one or two specific races if you're multiracial as well how that does affect your health and your insurance and even just like the systemic issues that you may deal with
1: yeah so i think as you were talking to it reminded me that you know with race being a social construct it is a human system and as and it was established very early in human culture and human society. And so it's as limited as our human capabilities work. And so I often say race implodes under the weight of its own absurdity, right? And so we see things like that happening, particularly as people start to cult- cross-culturally, you know, mingle and things like that. Um, but I think in terms of having to choose one race, I think the census, for example, is a very clear example of how it is systemic oppression or systemic um, marginalization of people who identify as multiracial. Um, But other instances in terms of healthcare, where there are um, systemic biases in the healthcare system that show that the racial disparities exist um, on a systemic level. And so you could be Disproportionately stigmatized, right? Before you even see the doctor, because they have all of your information on the docket. Um, and then once you meet the doctor, once you're actually in the office, um, there's the implicit bias that goes with that, right? So they they the system might this um, qualify you for certain things. And once you actually receive service or encounter the healthcare providers, if you're fortunate enough to have that, then, then you can receive that second layer of discrimination as well that also becomes systemic. So you don't receive the, the care that you deserve, the care that you actually need, right? Because a lot of the calls are subjective. A lot of times we'd like to think that a profession like medicine, or even you know, housing insurance, right? The housing market, where there there are numbers and there's there's data. A lot of times we think it's um, sort of a mathematical equation, but there are human beings making subjective calls behind all of these things, right? Whether to approve or deny um, certain medical procedures, or approve or deny home loans, and that sort of thing. And if there's racial bias at play. Um, there can be a disproportionate effect amongst people who have to choose one race over the other. And I think also in terms of reporting disparities, reporting um, inequalities in these kinds of systems, if we don't take into account multiracial identity, then we're not actually looking at the real impact of things like racism or colorism or even sexism, Right. So it's it's an important nuance that obscures what's really happening. It's hard to really pinpoint what the problems are and where the solutions therefore might be if we're using metrics that are not accurate, that are not really painting the picture of the people who are gaining access and the
0: people who aren't gaining access. And I'm glad you brought that up because it makes me think of Intersecting identities, and how some people may have a misconception that, you know, all black women have the same experience when, like, say, a darker skinned black transgender woman is going to have a very different uh, experience than a lighter skinned cisgender straight woman. And so, can you talk about how there can be oppression within your own race and culture? And I think a lot of people have that misconception of, you know, if it's your race or your own culture, of course you're not going to oppress each other or you're going to have the same experience.
1: Yeah, so I, and I like that you use the term intersectional or intersecting identities because it is very much like an intersection where you have streams of oppression coming from different directions and they kind of converge onto one person, right, onto one body. And I, I think your examples were perfect examples in terms of looking at race, gender, and gender expression and sexuality and even socioeconomic class. Um, and so Kimberly Crenshaw came up with that term to describe how. Um, on a very basic level, Black men compared to Black women had very different outcomes, very different life experiences. And since then, so that was in the 1980, in 1989, I believe, when she came up with that. But since then, we've able, been able to add even more nuance to those things. And so racism exists across genders, across socioeconomic classes, Sexism exists across races, across um, socioeconomic classes, right? So just because someone is part of a marginalized group in one area of their identity, they might be privileged in because of another area of their identity, right? So I think um, looking at cis gendered heterosexual men, for example, um, those are three privileged categories in our society. But if it's an indigenous man or a black man, for example, then that sort of reduces the amount of privilege they have access to. Um, But in terms of being discriminated against within your own community, within your own community group. I think there is internalized racism. There's internalized misogyny even, where people from marginalized groups sort of believe or buy into the system that disadvantages them. And so we kind of perpetuate
0: that amongst our own communities as well. Definitely. And even just, you know, you brought up internalized colorism. Can you maybe explain how that's affected you and how in your own life and even just the representation you see, you know, they may say in like workplaces or in media, like, look, there's representation, but it may be a very fair skinned black woman. And so it's like how much representation is there really? And obviously, how much more do you believe we need?
1: Oh, I think that's such a good example. We were having this discussion um, on one of my live streams with Kamala Harris being a very light-skinned, you know, mixed-race woman and how even though we accept her as a Black woman and we see it as, you know, progress just across the board in every sense of the word. It's like such a historic moment for the whole world, really. Um, But how it's still limited in terms of how, much of a representation she is for all Black women, right, or for darker-skinned Black women, or for um, Black women from the lower socioeconomic classes, Black women who are did not receive the Howard University degrees and education. Um, and I think people... Um, it's, it's hard because there's pushback when you say that, something like that, like... Um, I feel connected to this experience, but it's still not fully representing all of my identities. Right? It's representing one aspect of my identity, but there are so many other facets to who I am that are not showing up right now, that are not being represented in this one example. And I think that's why we need to do better than just tokenism. So tokenism is where you just have one representative from each group. And I think things like colorism are an example of how, why tokenism, one, a reason why tokenism is so ineffective, because if you only have one, there's no way that one person is going to be able to represent the multifaceted versions of identity that represent that group. And I think color is a very important one. A lot of times in media, they'll be a dark-skinned person, but it's a dark-skinned man. A lot of movies and casting and media representation includes several famous, Black actors who are dark-skinned men, but I still feel like, okay, that's good to see, but I'm a woman. And so it'd also be nice to see that extra layer added into the representation of the story that's being presented to us.
0: I am glad you brought that up too, because I even think I was talking about like the disabled community in my class. And I was thinking of how I've always seen white straight men. Um, And it's, you know, I never seen different levels and different intersecting identities. So it's kind of like, In general, I guess I want to ask you if you've seen or felt like gaslit by the media and communities of saying like, oh, well, you got your representation or isn't this enough or be happy with this when if you grow up seeing only white people in films, we never complain about that, you know, or like we never think, oh, like that's too many white people. (laughs) But if like a black person says, oh, well, I'm not seeing my community in this specific way represented and I need more may say someone else is saying that's too much like how do you approach that and is that something you see often
1: yes i think that's a great question because it is very much an issue in terms of being gaslit for anything that we speak up about but definitely people complain when you point out the disparities or the lack of representation and they want you to just sort of accept whatever you're given you should just be happy that there is a Black person. And so who cares if there's a queer Black person or not? Who cares if there's a Black woman? Or who cares if there's um, a dark-skinned Black woman, right? You got your one Black person, and let's just be happy and satisfied with that. And I think um, that's a form of grooming, right? Grooming people to accept the bare minimum, grooming people to accept breadcrumbs, and grooming people to not ask for more, not to demand more. And it comes from all groups, right? I, I hear it from you know white people, white individuals, but I also hear it from other Black people. Like if you complain about colorism, they'll say, well, you should just be happy that there's, there is a Black person in office at all, or that there is a Black person in the movie at all, right? And so don't complain that there aren't any dark-skinned Black people. Um, and I think one way I approach that, or one way I have that conversation is, um, one, if color doesn't matter, or if race doesn't matter, you know, then why is there not more diversity? So a lot of times people, you know, white individuals say, will say, well, why do you have to make it about race? Race doesn't matter. Race isn't important. And I said, well, clearly it is, or there would be diverse representation. The fact that all of the actors, for example, are white indicates to me that race is important, Because if it wasn't, then you would probably have a diverse cast. And so I think it's a a slight shift in understanding and mindset that people should have that in a world where race and color really don't matter, there would be abundant diversity in every room. There would be abundant diversity in every community, in every neighborhood. But the fact that we don't see diversity is indicative that race is the issue here, or that color is the issue here. Um, So it's, you know, and also not everyone wants to change their minds. And so I don't try to convince people. I just try to help people who want to learn, basically.
0: And that's like that, you know, performative um, action too, of just saying like, I don't see color. And honestly, I grew up believing that that was the right thing to do. And I didn't know any better. And realizing that saying that is actually not acknowledging real experiences of people who deal with being black every day or the LGBTQ plus community. It's like, I think in general, those micro invalidations and microaggressions that we're not aware of, if we see it on TV and in our families, they just become so normal to us. And so can you talk about the importance of acknowledging color and someone's reality and how common it may be to hear micro invalidations when it comes to colorism specifically?
1: So I think I use the very, I use very primitive examples, I think, you know, to kind of enter that conversation. But for one, I'll say that difference is not the problem. So when you say something like, I don't see color, the assumption is that, the, the, there's something wrong when things are different. And so I think we have to, as people, realize that no, it's not the fact that things are different that is causing the problem. It's our reaction to the difference that's the problem, right? So seeing that two things are different is not inherently wrong. It's when we start to try to put a hierarchy between those things, when we try to elevate one thing above the other. So different does not have to mean something is better or worse than the other. Um, And I think in nature, Just basic biology shows us that difference is a beautiful thing. Things like biodiversity are the reason why we are all here, right? If every plant, every animal, every insect was exactly the same and had exactly the same function, there would not be an ecosystem. It's essentially Um, I also, you know, say, look at the flowers. How boring would it be if every flower was the exact same color and the exact same shape and the exact same size? Um, Or even um, in terms of the seasons, right? You know, we would get bored if it rained every day. We need variety. And that can be a beautiful thing. And then the other thing I think about, too, in terms of the micro-invalidations is that things like colorism, our racism, our sexism, are systemic. And so even if interpersonally it's not important to us what color someone is, we can't truly care for that person if we aren't willing to acknowledge the world that they face, right? And so if we really wanna be someone's friend or if we really wanna be someone's life partner, for example, or even just be a good neighbor or a good coworker, we have to be willing to say, okay, these are some real issues that you are going to face because of the way society is structured around race and color and class and gender. Um, also, it's interesting because when, when people say, I don't see color, um, because it doesn't matter to me, I also ask them, I say, so do you not see gender, for example, or do you not see age, or do you not see height, or, you know, any of these other things, right? It's okay to say, oh, you know, I'm a woman, you're a man. That doesn't have to mean that you are better than me or that I'm less than you. But it's, a, it's okay to acknowledge that we are not exactly the same, but we can coexist quite peacefully and quite um, lovingly, I think, amongst our differences,
0: And you brought up a great point because it makes me think of how so many people are raised to, you know, I just imagine, for example, like the white woman in the grocery store with her kid and the kid's like, oh, is that a black man? And she's like, shh, or something. Is that person in a wheelchair like not bringing up conversations that maybe you're uncomfortable with or you're not educated on? And so can you talk about just in general, the importance of raising race conscious children and having that representation. And that goes in all areas, you know, representation for um, the disabled community or even working on fat phobia and showing that in the media as well, how important that is to acknowledge those differences. So it's not such a scary and taboo subject that you struggle to understand when you're older.
1: I, I love that point and that example, right? Because your example illustrates that children are already noticing the differences. And a lot of times, one excuse I hear from parents in terms of not talking about it is that, oh, well, they don't really understand. They're not ready to understand. But I think your example of how kids will point stuff out just innocently, like noticing like, oh, that's something I don't see represented often, um, that they are observant. And I tell people that children are actually more observant as a matter of survival. Right, It's evolutionary biology that makes children have to pay close attention to their environment and to the adults in their environment and to notice patterns so that they can learn how to live, like literally. So children are very ready, very much ready to have the world explained to them as much as possible and they're eager for it. And we actually demonize difference when we send the message that it's scary to talk about. It's so bad and so dangerous to acknowledge that difference that we're just gonna shush it, we're gonna hush it, we're gonna suppress it, we're gonna pretend like it's not there. And the psyche of a child, that silencing is precisely what makes that difference seem dangerous, right? Um, Whereas if we just accept it as if we would be showing them like, okay, this is an apple and this is an orange, right? Just like we're teaching them that these are normal things it's normal for some food to be apples and some food to be oranges, right? And so like kids are not going to discriminate against apples and oranges just because they're different fruits. And so we have to trust them that saying, acknowledging a difference that they already see, they already see the difference. And so simply saying, yes, that that person does look different than us, right? Or that person does have a different body type than we do, or they have a different accent or speak a different language than we do. And they are part of the human race, the human species. Um, And so I think that there's more of a danger in letting children assume our guests. And especially in terms of parents and teachers, the alternative to you teaching them about what these differences mean is that you're leaving it up to chance in terms of what interpretation they're going to have, right? And so you have to be willing to guide them and steer them to a healthy interpretation of that difference. Because otherwise, it's, they're, you're leaving a vacuum in their in their imagination for what those differences might mean. And so I think it's our responsibility to fill the searching um, space that children are naturally in with, um, just and fair and, you know, loving frameworks.
0: And like you said, if you don't teach them yourself, they're likely going to learn in school. And we know that we don't get an accurate representation school. Like I've you know, my schooling, I probably just read books by white men. And so I did not get an accurate um, depiction of history, American history. And so even I'm curious as to your thoughts on filters on social media and what you see because, or white people in general felt so entitled to claim that they are superior. And for so long, even like with the one drop rule, if you have one one drop of, you know, African-American descent, you're considered black, even if it's 1 16th. And just this idea that anything that wasn't white was wrong. But now we have so many filters where white individuals, for example, are making themselves a lot darker or they're making themselves look a certain way. Can you talk about how that plays into colorism and how that can be detrimental?
1: Yeah. So I think colorism is part of a larger beauty industry. Um, So obviously colorism extends beyond the beauty industry, but in terms of speaking about how filters and social media operates in particular, I think the global beauty industry has a lot to do with that. And so filters, even if colorism wasn't a problem, filters would exist to make people's eyelashes longer, right? Or filters might exist to make people's acne scars go away, right? And so filters are perpetuating and buying into and exploiting people's insecurities around beauty norms and beauty standards of all types. And so colorism is color, skin tone, complexion, shade is one of those norms, beauty norms that has um, been something that people try to change with filters and through other means offline as well. But I think in terms of White people, for example, using filters to look more tan or to look more um, ambiguously raced. Um, There has been a commodification of Black features, of darker skin tones, of more, um, I I think, Black features, for example, things that we associate with Black people or people of color, such as full lips, for example. And so those things have become commodities. They have become fads. They've become interesting trends that white people can experiment with and explore in order to increase their clout on social media or in order to increase their clout in their, you know, social circle in some way. And it's, it exacerbates colorism and exacerbates racism because those same features, while white people can use them to advance their careers or advance their status in society, those same features on an actual Black person will further marginalize the Black person. And so the gap increases, right? And so it becomes, um, I, heard the, I heard an argument from some colleagues once that, you know, well, cultural appropriation isn't a thing because we all exchange cultures. It's just called cultural exchange, Um, And I think the the fallacy with that perspective is that cultural exchange is mutual, mutually beneficial for both sides of that exchange. And so the reason why it's cultural appropriation and it's problematic is because it's not an even or equal or reciprocal exchange. So that um, transaction that's being done is further marginalizing certain groups while further exacerbating the privilege and the higher status of other
0: groups. And so I think that's where it becomes problematic. That makes me think of like, toxic white feminism where it's like support all women but it's like do you really support all women (laughs) like all women with intersecting identities is that something you support and so even just going back to like micro invalidations um I think a lot of people may not even know what that sounds like can you give some examples like even one I just think of is you know you're pretty for a black woman or can I touch your hair kind of thing like I've had my friend tell me she's experienced that often and people may have good intentions and just not know. So can you maybe give some examples of what you've heard?
1: Yeah. So you're pretty for a black girl. You're pretty for a dark skinned
0: black girl. <laughs> um, you're pretty
1: for a big girl, right? So not, you know, use like toward me, but in conversations about these things, um, you are so articulate is one that a lot of people of color get because it's People are surprised that you can be Black and speak articulately. For some reason, that's surprising. Or, you know, can I touch your hair? Other ones are, did you cut your hair? Is your hair different? Um, other ones will are, such as in the workplace in particular, um, why are you so angry? Why don't you smile more often, right? And what you'll hear Black women say, for example, is that I smile just as much as everyone else but it's your perception of me as a black woman that you don't even notice that you can't see past the bias. Um, little comments that people, and you know, it's a, a micro aggression or a micro invalidation because there's always plausible deniability around it. There's always the potential to say, well, I was just joking or I was just trying to be nice. I was trying to pay you a compliment going back one that um, a client I'm working with now, talked about a lot of the, what are you, what are you? Um, That's one where people say, well, I just wanted to know because you're so pretty, you're so exotic, right? Or something like that. And so the intentions seem innocuous, they seem benign, but it is intrusive and it's crossing a barrier for people to say, well, what are you? As if you aren't human or to say, you know, why are you so angry? Um, as if you don't have a reason to be in some cases, or can I touch your hair? It's a part of my body, right? So you're, it's almost like saying, can I touch your neck, right? It's a part of my body. And to exoticize that or to make it seem alien in some way, to make it seem foreign or um, other, othered, I think is some of the common threads for these kinds of um, comments.
0: And that's such a good point too, because I was in a workshop and I remember the woman leading, the black woman leading said that if you, for example, people will say like this black woman is a goddess or Beyonce, Rihanna, they're all goddesses. But if you continue to just claim them as that way, then you're not humanizing them, if that makes sense. So can you talk about how some people might go to the opposite extreme and think they're being helpful by saying all black women are goddesses, <laughs> but it's like you're also not humanizing them in that sense.
1: That's, and that's such a beautiful point. I'm glad that um, the person at that conference mentioned that aspect of it because um, the one that I think is most harmful that people think is, you know, such a compliment is Black women are so strong. Y'all are so strong. I just, I wish I could be as strong as Black women. You're so strong. Um, and one that is part of that perception of Black women being so strong is one of the reasons why we don't get help. (laughs) One of the reasons why people don't show up to save us when we very much, in fact, need saving sometimes, right? Um, And it's this idea that, oh, a Black woman will survive no matter what we throw at them. We can allow them to just kind of wallow in the most dire of circumstances, in the most racist and sexist and classist and colorist contexts, and they'll be able to lift themselves up by their bootstraps because they're so strong. So, I think that's an aspect of dehumanization. But also, when I talk about representation for dark skinned Black women, for example, I always say, you know, I I try to avoid saying positive representation. And instead, I say nuanced, complex, interesting, dynamic representation. Because it's not about positive, like we have to have um, a bunch of Black Mr. Rogers, you know, on TV. It's okay to have a Black villain. Um, But do we also have Black heroes to balance that representation? Do we have a Black villain who's also interesting and smart and has a unique past, like who's a sympathetic villain, if you will, in the movie? Or do we have um, a Black woman who is strong, but also needs help, also seeks help, also cries, also has a breakdown from time to time, right? And so I think that those stereotypes persist because we don't have adequate representation of those
0: things. Definitely. And even just the idea that you know generational trauma is real and trauma is real, but Black people aren't defined only by their hardships. I think also there can be that box of, let's just tell these stories about you know, revolving it around this one part of your identity when even just thinking like in the future when I have clients, maybe they don't necessarily, that's not the most salient identity that they identify with. So it's important to really reflect on all parts of one's identity. So in general, for someone who feels like they don't know how to identify or they don't feel connected to either. And I know in this, we're talking about multiracial, biracial, black, white, individual, they don't feel part of either group, and they feel kind of lost. What advice would you give to someone in finding their identity?
1: That's a good question. So I'll preface that by saying that I, that's not an experience I've had to deal with, right? And in terms of um, nuance, that has been the privilege of monoracial people is that we don't have to think of we don't we don't have to think about that. Just like as an able-bodied person, I don't have to think about. How I'm going to enter a building and how I'm going to get to the third floor if the elevator is broken. It doesn't even bother me. It doesn't phase me to see a broken elevator or a broken escalator. I think as a monoracial person, it just doesn't phase me to think about those things. So I will acknowledge that in terms of giving advice. I'll start in terms of advice by giving some resources for anyone who might be watching. Um, there are organizations that are coming up now, and I think this is one of the beautiful things about the current generation of technology and the internet. Two that I recommend are Midwest Mixed. Since the pandemic, they have broadened their reach beyond the Midwest to be, you know, be national. But they do a lot of programming for people who are identified as mixed race or people who are transracially adopted. And then also the Mixed Bloom Room, um, which is a coaching program where you can take courses and do some group coaching around um, issues specific to mixed identity. And there's also a new book that came out by Yaba Blay. I think it came out just a week or two ago called One Drop. And so that book tells the stories and the narratives of people who are mixed race and um, it asks us, asks us to question or to interrogate and investigate and sh- sort of shift our perspectives on what race actually is, right? So those are some resources beyond, you know, my advice. Um, but I think in terms of what I would say is there has to be boundary, some internal boundary that you have for yourself in terms of, being able to identify the way you choose regardless of what other people are quote unquote, allowing you to identify as. And that is, I say that as advice, but it's not easy acknowledging that it's not easy. Um, And this can be applied to other aspects of our lives, right? Um, Setting that boundary for yourself and being able to stand in what feels authentic to you, And knowing, understanding, accepting that people have a right to disagree, but they don't have a right to define you, right? Um, And I think that the resources I provided is also included in my advice. I think cultivating, finding, identifying individuals, communities, certain types of relationships that do not try to force your identity into a box, right? And this is very basic for anyone, is you want to cultivate relationships with people that allow you to be the fullest version of yourself possible, right? And so if your racial identity is one of those things that people are trying to siphon off or trying to, um, I think, suppress or control or manipulate in some way, I think we have to be willing to dissolve those relationships and maybe even go it alone for a while until we find connections and relationships that allow us to be our full self. And that could be racial identity, that could be gender identity, sexual identity, right? Anyone who's saying that you're not enough or you're too much for this space, um, it's not a space for you. And I also offer like, my understanding of healing and belonging is that, I get this from Brene Brown too, so she's a great resource. But in order to belong somewhere, you have to be your full self. Otherwise, what we're doing is trying to fit in. And so fitting in is when we try to be the same as everyone in the room. And belonging is only possible when I am allowed to be in the room and be my full self. And I think that starts with ourselves, right? Are we accepting our full self? Um, if we are not accepting our full selves when we're alone, it's gonna be that much harder to bring our full selves to the room or to the table with other people. Um, so I think it's not that unsimilar, or not that different than advice I would give to anyone who's struggling with accepting themselves.
0: So overall, the show is about living your most authentic life. And of course, that means something different for everyone. But for you, what does living your most authentic life mean?
1: I love the idea of authenticity. I love contemplating what that means. I love reflecting moment to moment, whether or not I'm being authentic, whether or not my speech is authentic and my appearance is authentic. So um, I guess that's kind of starting my answer there. Um, I think an authentic life requires self-reflection. It requires spending time in solitude to get to know who you are, to get to know what you actually like and to get to know how you actually feel and, you know, what you're actually inclined to do based on your own inner stirrings and your own inner drives and motivations and getting very clear about when you are being called and led because it's what you want to do versus doing it because you feel it will get you into the room or because it will help you avoid judgment or because it's expected of you or because um, it's what your upbringing told you was the right way to be or do something. And that kind of discernment, being able to discern that does require a lot of solitude and introspection and reflect self-reflection. I like to use journaling and conversation to help me do that. So yeah, I think to me, also being at home with myself. So I think it has to be authentic is being comfortable within myself. Even if I'm in a crowd, I have to be comfortable in my own mind, comfortable and at home in my own spirit and my own expression of myself, whether that be physically or creatively or you know some other form of expression.
0: Definitely. And that makes me think of the idea of resiliency. And I had a past guest on the show. um, He mentioned how a lot of black women or girls are called grown or they have to like grow up earlier because, you know, black women are strong kind of thing. So is that something you've experienced? And can you maybe explain how harmful that is and how we can work on just humanizing everyone?
1: Yeah. So I don't, I haven't, I've been fortunate to not, I don't feel like I had to grow up early Um, I think that is one of my, um, privileges of having, I was, I grew up in a single parent home and there, you know, we were kind of lower middle-class, like working class people because my mom had a college degree, which is a type of privilege I benefited from that I did not work for, right? My mom worked for it, but I didn't, um. And so she had like a managerial job. She was a manager at a major department store. And so it was hard because it was a single income family, but it was also um, stable enough to where I was able to have a childhood, right? And so I think a lot of that is intersecting with class as well in terms of Black women having to grow up too, so early and take on extra responsibilities. As I'm saying that though, I did my family, my brother and my sister, and I started working early and our paychecks when we were teenagers would go towards household expenses, right? So we didn't have like that excess cash to just go to the mall or just go to the movies. Um, When we got jobs, it was to help pay bills, right? At a very early age. Um, But I agree that in terms of humanizing people, um, especially Black women in our culture, um, seeing should Black people as children. I think when we look at someone like Tamir Rice, the young boy who was playing with a toy gun at the park and was fatally shot by cops on site, right? They didn't even stop to investigate or, you know, um, is an example of how Black children and Black girls too are perceived as dangerous adults, right? really early and that plays out in school systems, that plays out even in terms of the sexual exploitation of black girls, right? They are often blamed for their victimization and they're called fast, you know, she's being fast just because her body develops in a way that people, you know, project their their stuff onto her, right? Um, And so there's a need to protect Black children and protects Black girls. And we don't see that often enough. I even think about in terms of representation, I apologize for kind of going on tangents here. But in terms of representation, I think often about how all the movies where there are people risking their lives to save a little white girl or to save a white woman. And you know, you have these men like going to wars and like putting their life on the line and like exploding buildings and going into like really crazy car chases and jumping into burning buildings to save a white girl or to save a white woman. And how many movies do we see that level of efforts being put into saving a black child, a black girl, right? Or a black woman even. And we don't, we don't see that story being told. And I think it's very indicative you know, of what you're saying about how um, we don't, as a culture, we're not conditioned to believe that, A, Black women and Black girls are in trouble because we think if they are in trouble, they caused it, that they're the reason for it. And we're also not conditioned to care enough to help,
0: right? as we finish off, I want to ask you how important you believe it is to diversify your media intake, to read books, to watch movies, and not just the same, okay, I watched a movie about a black man struggling, not just the same type of film or book, but overall, to reflect on your implicit bias and to diversify what you see on a daily basis. And I know that can be hard if you're in a bubble and you're so used to specific lifestyle, but realizing that what you see is just the surface level.
1: I like this because I think it's a primary channel for personal and individual change. And to your point about it not being easy necessarily, I agree that change, this kind of change is never easy. And so I would say to people, one, we should not expect that changing these issues and seeing progress in these areas is going to be easy, right? It's almost like wanting to improve your health without having to change your diet, right? Or without having to be more active. Um, And so yeah, it takes work to improve your psychological, um, cognitive health in terms of frameworks about the world. And so it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort to find a new movie to watch. It's worth the effort to find a new television show. It's worth the effort to find new music, our new books, our new documentaries, our new school lesson plans for students. It's worth that effort. We now and particularly do not have an excuse Because technology, if you are able to listen to this podcast, you are able to find alternatives. We have been so fortunate to live in the era of online digital technology and the internet. Um, In the 1960s, when people were trying to make progress on the civil rights, they did not have this technology, right? Imagine what they could have done with Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat or TikTok Um, or Netflix right? Or Hulu, or just YouTube, right? Um, and so I think that is the resource today. Today, that is the resource. Even if you want to read a paperback book, you can still use the internet to find out which paperback book you should read, right? And so I think we need to put that technology to use as, um, and I think it's, there's a lot of untapped potential in terms of how people use technology. I think a lot of times we just use it for some basic entertainment, but I think we are all underutilizing a very, very powerful tool in our current age.
0: I agree. And even just like, following five other people who have very different experiences than you so that your feed doesn't look the same and the same stories. It's so true. And so overall, can you explain what colorism healing means to you? I know that's the name of your Instagram page.
1: Yeah. So colorism healing, I define healing as Three, as having three layers. And the first is the individual layer. I very much am committed to helping people heal their personal traumas, their personal wounds around experiences with colorism. But I also think the individual layer includes reprogramming those implicit biases, right? So doing things like changing up our feed or, you know, finding new YouTube videos to consume and sort of trying to retrain our minds. And then I also think of healing as healing relationships between people. So between individuals, amongst groups of people, there these issues have caused a lot of mistrust and we've betrayed each other. And so repairing those relationships, learning to forgive and um, cultivate stronger communities as a whole. I think it's part of the healing aspect that's really important to me. And then I also think about healing our systems, like healing society. Like I see society as having a a disease. Culturally speaking, we have fractures. And so I want to heal socially as well, like systemically. I want our society to be more whole um and it's been the my life's work the labor of love um getting to like just see touch people's lives and have conversations with people and hear their stories and it's i just see people's souls and spirits like in an instagram comment it just like their souls are shining through to me and that's what makes me show up every day right because it, it does take a lot of work to produce content and to um you know Navigate internet trolling and those kinds of things, but for the ones whose like spirits are really shining through in their comments or in their chats, um, it's it's worth it. It's um, the best compensation and thank you you could have.
0: <laughs> oh. I bet well, thank you so much for the work you do and the fact that you you know if you have trolls and haters, that means you're doing something right. You're speaking up for something. you know if you're not then there it's like you're not really taking any side. So I really appreciate the work you doing for being here. And lastly, I wanted to ask you if you can share um, your Instagram handle, your social media pages and what's coming up next for you.
1: Yeah, so at colorism healing on Instagram, Facebook, Um, on Twitter, I'm Dr. SL Webb and on TikTok, I'm at Colorism Healing as well. And I think the hub, if you really want to be able to follow everything I do is colorismhealing.com, which is the website.
0: Yes. And if anything else is coming up for you, any workshops or anything people can look forward to?
1: yeah so the the writing contest i have to you know encourage people if they have a story to tell regarding you know colorism or related issues we would love to have them submit their story either in poems poems essays stories and the deadline for that is april 30th 2021
0: amazing well thank you so much for being here this was such an incredible conversation i can't wait to share it thank you I'm very thankful to Dr. Sarah Webb for being on the show. We touched on so many great points. I hope you were able to take something away from it. I know I did. Um, just even learning more about the concept of colorism, understanding the differentiation between colorism and racism, because I'm sure many people may confuse the two or not understand how they're different or, you know, obviously they complain to effect with each other, but understanding that there is a differentiation there and even recognizing that our intersecting identities play so much into how we experience life, the opportunities we have, how we move through the world, how we're treated. And it's it's the same thing like I can say, you know, I'm Persian, but I have a different experience than many other um, Iranian American individuals. And I know that sometimes I've gotten the microaggressions of you don't look Persian or you you look too white to be Persian as if they have a specific image of what that looks like. I thought the same thing about myself and other people. And so I hope you enjoyed this one. I know I did. And I'm very thankful to Dr. Sarah Webb for being here. Her Instagram again is at colorismhealing and her website is colorismhealing.com. And you can follow my Instagram at Trust and Thrive. And if you wanna leave a rating and review once again, You can do so on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much in advance if you choose to do so. Please feel free to message me. Message Dr. Webb. Let us know what you were able to take away, what you enjoyed from this episode. There will not be a new episode next Thursday, actually. I am just finishing up my second quarter of grad school this week, going on a super short road trip with my boyfriend for a few nights. So I have decided to take next week off to really enjoy and just be present so we will be back the following week with a new episode so just a reminder that there will not be a new episode next thursday and that being said make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a new episode stay tuned we have a lot of great conversations coming up and i'm excited to share them so thank you for being here i hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and i will talk to you all soon